You're listening to the Seahawks Insiders. Cam Chancellor comes up and just unloads. Number 31, clean his clock. Getting you ready for Seahawks football every Sunday. Russell has time, fires down the middle. Got his man, Baldwin. He is in. Touchdown, Seahawks. Doug Baldwin again. Powered by Seahawks.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of the Seahawks Insider Podcast. I'm Jen Mueller alongside John Boyle from Seahawks.com. Hello, Jennifer. How are you? Hello, John. You made me feel like I'm in trouble. My parents call me Jennifer when I'm in trouble. This is a formal podcast It's today. a very formal. So then it would be John or Jonathan? Just John. Just John. No, Noathan. Well, that's a little disappointing. Sorry. I guess we could make that sound formal or, or attempt to. But I tell you what, we're going to attempt to break down this week's game ahead of the Seahawks-Texans matchup at CenturyLink Field. But before we get into this week's matchup, there's been a little bit of news for the Seahawks this week in the signing of Dwight Freeney. And, of course, it's not having Cliff Averill that makes that move necessary. Let's dive into that one, John. And what does that mean, and what was your initial reaction to that news? You know, it's not it's not shocking once you look at kind of landscape of who's out there and the fact, as you said, Cliff Averill's hurt. They've been a little light in numbers of pass rushers lately. So, you know, look, they're not bringing Dwight Freeney in to be 2007 Dwight Freeney. They don't, you know, he's 38 years old. You're not asking him to be that guy, but he's still been a very effective player into his mid to late 30s, and you, you're not going to have him come in and take over Cliff Averill's role. That's Frank Clark. You want a guy who can rotate in with DeMarcus Smith and Brandon Jackson? Just kind of help add some depth to that pass rush so you feel like you can just keep bringing numbers at, at teams late in games. And, you know, maybe he gives you 15 snaps a game, something like that. But he's he's still got some quality in him. We have talked going back to training camp about the need to keep those guys fresh because this is a long haul in the season. They've already had their bye week. You are now going to be playing a number of consecutive weeks into the playoffs. And when you look at snap counts and you look at how much those pass rushers have been on the field, look, I know that Michael Bennett wants to be out there every down, but considering the injury that he's dealing with, I would think his snap counts are up a little higher than what coaches would prefer. Yeah. I mean, Michael Bennett gutted it out, and Pete Carroll said he came out of that game just fine, which is obviously very good news. And he can be an effective player playing 75 80% of the snaps. But over the course of the season, if you can get that number down just a little bit, and if that's what you kind of, by adding one more pass rusher in Farini, you do help Bennett out a little bit there, then that's, I think, just going to make you a stronger team down the stretch and hopefully in the postseason. Well, it's interesting because if you take a look, and let's just say, and we don't know this for a fact, but let's just say that Dwight plays 10 to 15 snaps a game. Does that really make a difference and take something off the legs of the other guys? Absolutely. I mean, I you know, it may not seem like much, but when you add that up over, you know, they got 10 more games to go, that's 100 snaps maybe that someone like Michael Bennett can rest, then sure, that's whether it's, one series that you just leave them out or just one or two plays here and there, it, it'll, you know, the cumulative effect, especially on a veteran guy like Mike, it, it can really make a difference. So, and look, it, from what he's done the last couple of years, he could be effective in 10 or 15 snaps a game. I mean, just, just two years ago, Dwight Freeney did something very similar to what he's doing now, which is work out on his own, be unsigned into the season. He jumped in with Arizona, got eight sacks in 11 games. And that was learning a totally new defense the advantage he has here is he just spent a year playing in Atlanta for Dan Quinn. So 
what the Seahawks are going to ask him to do is going to be very similar to what he did a year ago. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting that he's got some confidence in the process that he has to go through now, and he's not learning an entirely different playbook. And this is a place that he's wanted to come and become part of the team, as we heard in his introductory press conference this week. I've always wanted to play here, in a sense. Once I left Indianapolis, I was like, man, you know, it would be special to play in Seattle. And one of the reasons being is because of, you know, just the mentality on defense. You know, there's, it's, it kind of gets lost sometimes in the league now these days of offense, of high-powered offense. And I'm not saying by any means that our offense isn't good. Um, but I think it's a little something different on defense in this city and, and how they, the 12th man really rises up and, and gets behind their D. And uh, I'm just happy to be a part of it. And whether he's on the field or off the field, you cannot argue with a guy who has done this for so long in the league. His impact, just in other players watching how he do things, John, I I think is going to be beneficial. Yeah, you could argue that more than anything, he contributes on the field, and you obviously want him to do that. Dwight Freeney's most lasting impact on the Seahawks could be in Frank Clark. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is, the experience he has, the leader he is. For a young, very talented pass rusher like Frank Clark, I mean, we just talked to Frank Clark in the locker room, and he was already talking about how excited he was to pick his brain. And he joked it, you know, he's been working on his spin move, so now he's got the master to learn from. So, yeah, I mean, when you have a guy who's been through so much, played in three Super Bowls, seven Pro Bowls, I mean, this guy's he's, he's most likely a Hall of Famer. And, and to have that kind of guy who's not just that talented, but a willing leader, a guy who's, you know, he talked about that's, I mean, that he understands that's part of why he's here and that willingness to help the young guys is going to be really big. And Pete talked about what exactly those young guys can glean if they just watch his weekly preparation. Just talking to the guys who worked with him in the past, um, just in our communications. And I know the response that, that Clint Hurt has had just in you know, visiting with him last night and today and watching him interact. He's got a lot to offer. He has a lot to offer. And, uh, we're thrilled by that. You know. Well, we do expect to see Dwight Freeney on the field this week, provided that all goes well. We did not see a whole lot of the defense on the field last week, John, as we kind of take a step back and figure out in what areas the Seahawks took a step forward last week against the Giants. Of course, it was a win, and there were good things that happened in the second half. But I guess what are the couple of things that stick out to you about that game? Uh, first off, just because you kind of hinted at time of possession, w- it was a strange game for the offense. Because you look at those first half numbers, they doubled them up in time of possession, yardage. I mean, first downs, you net 15 first downs and a half. That's really, really good. With three points, because they somehow managed to have a really long series in the goal line and get nothing out of it. So it was just, it was a strange half for the offense. But, you, f- I, you know, at least in my opinion, you feel better about that kind of three-point half than the ones we've seen maybe in the past where it's just punt, 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 and then one field goal late. So I think even though the scoring wasn't there in the first half, overall what the offensive did did was encouraging. Pass protection was better against a pretty aggressive pass rush, and then they got it going in the second half. So to me, you know, just seeing the offense take another step forward was big, and then more and more as this defense does what it does, I really think that what we saw in Tennessee was one half of just kind of a weird, fluky, bad game for them. Maybe it was the heat. People don't want to use that excuse, but that probably played a factor. But really, you take one half of football out, and this defense is playing as well as it really has, even in 2013, which is the benchmark for this franchise. And 
lo and behold, you look at where they rank in scoring defense, which has kind of always been their signature, and there's a number one by it again. So, you know, I, I just I think this defense almost doesn't get enough credit these days because we've become so accustomed to it. You almost take it for granted. It's like, oh, hey, they're going to go out there and hold team to 10, 15, 17 points, whatever, and they just do it year after year and week after week, and we're we're seeing it again. Well, and isn't that basically what Richard Sherman said yeah. this week? He says, you know, you can get bored by greatness sometimes, and, and you forget that doing what we're doing is actually pretty impressive, and they've got staying power to be able to do this year after year. I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Here's what else. When you talk about that time of possession, I remember looking at the halftime stats when we were in New York and thinking, man, the Seahawks offense ran, I think it was 41, 42 plays in that first half. Yeah. And I am so, I was so enamored by that because, as you mentioned, there have been games where it's just been three and out, three and out, three and out, and they can't get anything going. What I didn't look at was the number of plays that the Giants ran. And one of the coaches was walking off the field towards the buses with me after the game, and he goes, man, can you believe that? They did not even run as many defensive plays as we would have in a practice period. You know, yeah. the, the defense wasn't on the field and able, and able to do anything. I just thought, wow, that's, that's another way to look at that. And you could tell the entire time that Eli Manning had happy feet and he did not want to do anything no, I mean, anywhere it, it, close to those DBs. No, I mean, that's, we've seen that more and more kind of uh, really over the years, but especially this year, that teams just aren't going to test this defense. And they're going to, you know, if they can get their – their chunk plays on the ground, or if they can just kind of nickel and dime you down the field, then maybe that's how you have success against this defense. But with as good as Richard Sherman, as good as Earl Thomas has been, you just and with a good pass rush where if you sit back and try to let those plays develop, you, you got to deal with Mike Bennett, Frank Clark, Sheldon Richardson now. So it's you just see Pete, Pete Carroll talked about that a little bit to, too, that teams just aren't taking the shots anymore. They're just kind of trying to get the ball out quick. Right, which makes some of those numbers look a little bit skewed. So you've got to look at other measures of success exactly. and not like, just look at sacks Yeah, and you hurries. look at 12 sacks and say, boy, the pass rush isn't there. But it's not – usually when you don't have a pass rush, the downside of that is teams pick you apart, and they have one of the best pass defenses in the league this year. So that's not the case. Well, if we've spent a lot of time praising the defense, I think we've got a couple of questions to answer on the offense. And when it mattered and when the Seahawks hit, to the, hit the second half of games, I mean, look, it has been shown not just this year, but in past years. They score the most points in the fourth quarter. The third quarter is a close second when it comes to the Seahawks putting points on the board. The run game looked better in spurts. But there were also times where Thomas Rawls was maybe not quite as in sync with his blockers as he could have been and as Eddie Lacy might have been. What did we learn about the ground game, especially given C.J. Procise's status? Yeah, I mean, I think the best way to put it is they're just still finding themselves. They're not, you know, it hasn't been what they want it to be, but there's some signs of progress. They're kind of starting to find that mix of guys. Procise's injury makes it hard to kind of sort that out. But between Rawls and Lacey, we've seen pretty even work between those two the last few weeks. Um, you know, it's been a weird road for Thomas Rawls with the injuries. You know, he, he had such a phenomenal second half to his rookie year, and then it's just been kind of start and stop for him with injuries. And, and he's just not – he hasn't quite been right, but he's he's getting there. And I think these past couple of games, even though his yardage is in there, are really going to help him down the road just kind of get the feel back for it. Do you remember, and I know that I'm putting you on the spot, and I'm really sorry. Do you remember the mix of run versus pass in the first half or anything close to it? Because it seems to me, and, I, and I'm, I'm getting to a point here, 
I believe you. <laughs> Could you tell my husband that? Because he just doesn't think that I ever have a point to any of my stories. But what I'm thinking is in the first half, you know, whether it was Thomas or whether it was uh, J.D. McKissick or Eddie Lacy, they weren't always getting the yards, but they went back to the run, which, of course, we know is a Seahawks style of football. But all of that helped to set up Paul Richardson's touchdown grab that really turned the tide for the Seahawks there. At least they had enough on the ground to keep the Giants off the receivers. Exactly. And no, I don't remember the mix. I, I do know by the end of the game they had 31 carries, which is a pretty good number. You want the yards about to where be they want. Yeah, yeah, but those want, are about the touches yeah. they were looking for. But you're right. If you're still attempting it and having some – I mean, they weren't just pounding the ball, but they were having enough success that teams have to respect it. And that's a big part of – I mean, you want to get the yards on the ground, but a big part of that too is – it helps your passing game be explosive because if teams want to load the box and play the run really, you know, really aggressively, then all of a sudden you get more one-on-ones, you get those matchups you like, you know, you get no, you know, no safety help, that kind of thing. And those big plays suddenly get there. Or as you referenced, the fake play works because they bite on the run there. So, you know, look, ideally they're going to rush for 150, 200 yards a game and just really dominate in that area. But until then, you at least want to kind of balance those numbers out to help the passing game. Well, and when you mention explosive plays, look, that was something that I was looking for against the Giants because if you go back a couple of weeks, the game against the Rams and the Seahawks came away with a win, but they had one, just one explosive play. That was a pass play from Russell to J.D. McKissick for 21 yards. They had nothing on the ground that yeah. was over 10 yards. Now, last week, again, you mentioned you would like to see more of those big runs, but you had two of them at least, so that's an improvement. And then you had six passing plays plays that were 20 or more yards. So the chunk plays were there, which does help open up things, and they scored on them. Yeah, and you know, it's funny you mentioned that because that Rams game, it's really rare. You know, There's a reason they focus a lot on explosive plays. They, they define it as 16 or more yards in the air, 12 or more on the ground. And the reason they use those numbers is their studies have shown them if you have one or more play of that yardage in a drive, it increases your chances of scoring on that drive. X percent. I mean, it's a, it's a drastic difference. So that's a big deal to this team. In that Rams game, they lost the explosive play battle by yes. a lot, yet came out ahead. And the, the only way you can do that is by turnovers, and they got five takeaways in that game. So yes. that, that game was weird. But, yeah, they got back to playing more of their style where – it was 10 to 2 the explosive difference in this game and that's i mean that's really dominating both ways those numbers so that you know that's that's a good formula to win when you're getting big plays and your opponents just can't get it done and i think that that's going to be a big key against the texans this week as we spend just a few minutes taking a look at what this matchup means it's interesting because we don't see Houston very often, yeah. and I don't pay attention to those highlights very much. I mean, when J.J. Watt was in there and healthy, of course you see him on the highlights. You know that Deshaun Watson is lighting it up as a rookie. Let's take a look at the Seahawks' offense against that defense. This is a Texans defense that leads the NFL in force fumbles with nine. They are among the best at not allowing teams to convert on third down, which I would argue goes back to those explosive plays so that we've got some better down and distances on that one. But this is a really interesting matchup. It really is. And, you know, the, you think of, you mentioned J.J. Watt, you think of the Texans, and that's kind of the face of that franchise. But when he's missed time, not, both this year and last year and in the past, and obviously he's out right now, they've still been a really good defensive team. There's a lot of talent there. And you mentioned that the takeaways, you know, we all know what a big deal taking care of the football is to Pete Carroll and that. That's going to be put to the test for sure. 
Well, and when you look even further, so, um, you know, depending on what the game plan holds for the Seahawks, they've got a pair of cornerbacks that have the most combined career tackles in the NFL in Kareem Jackson and Jonathan Joseph. So I'm curious, I guess the game plan just stays the same for the Seahawks this week. We know that Pete wants to do what they do. Does this put more impetus and onus on the running game? I don't know about more because, you know, I think this is that's what they always want to be. And when it's not there, either because they can't run it well or the situations are kind of dictating it because they're getting behind down distance wise, then things shift. But I don't think they necessarily go into the game with more focus on it because I, I think it's it's kind of always there. But, yeah, it's again, this this is a pretty legit test really on both sides of the ball and we'll, we'll get into their offense, but it's, I mean, for their records, only three and three, which seems pretty modest, but they're playing really good football right now. Well, they've been playing really good football since Deshaun Watson took over and his numbers, John are off the chart. Yeah. I mean, you don't see rookies do what he does. I mean, even Russell Wilson, as good as he was as a rookie, he, you know, he wasn't throwing 15 touchdown passes this early in the season to, to, to not just be, getting the touchdowns, but taking care of the ball. He's got a, a three-to-one touchdown-interception ratio, which is good for any quarterback, but especially a rookie and, you know, passer rating north of 100. Those are – that's pretty rare air for a, for a rookie quarterback. And he's got a couple of very reliable targets to throw to, I would say. Yeah, I mean, you got DeAndre Hopkins, 382 yards and six touchdowns, and then Fuller comes in with five more touchdowns and really legit speed in Fuller. I mean, he's a guy that can take the top off a of defense, so – yeah, there's there's a lot to like about the Texans. They're they're it's a and they're coming off a bye, which is always makes the team a little tougher as well. So it's it's a very very stiff test for the Seahawks. You're not the only one who likes just kind of the makeup of the Texans. When you dive a little bit further into the matchup, you see that under Coach O'Brien, the Texans are 21 and 0 when leading at halftime in the regular season. Houston is the only team in the NFL that has not given up a halftime lead since 2014, and that's one of the things that stands out to Pete Carroll. One of my favorite characteristics, you know, that that teams finish well and they're, they're doing that and and uh, putting people away. They, they've, this is they're off to a tremendous start to the season, and they could be easily better than the record right now. So, um, it, it's it's a young, spunky group of guys. Coach is doing a good job, and the guys are fighting hard. You can see it all the way across the board. All three phases are really tough and physical, and getting after it, and, and uh, they give us problems everywhere. So. It's no wonder that, that they're finishing well and putting people away, like you're saying. So I guess, John, all of this being said, we know that the Texans are a good team. I'm really glad that we've got this game at CenturyLink because I do think that home field advantage plays a role in this one. And I guess overall, how do you kind of feel and quantify what this matchup looks like going into Sunday? Yeah. I mean, first off, as you mentioned, home field, obviously any team wants to play at home. But as good as Deshaun Watson's been – uh, O'Brien talked about this this week. He hasn't played in this. I mean, it's the environment at CenturyLink Field. It's it is a real game changer. That's not just you know Seahawks fans thinking there's something special that they're not. They they do make a difference in these games. It is louder there than just about anywhere in the league. And until a quarterback has really experienced that, it can kind of mess with you. So that could be a big factor for the Seahawks. And you know we've seen them. One, as we saw in the Colts game, Pete Carroll talked about that being kind of the formula they want where if you can get ahead, obviously you want to do that in a game, but if you can get ahead when you're at home, kind of get a team forced to pass and get that crowd noise dialed up, helping the pass rush, it, it can really change a game. 
Yeah, and I would think that as good as Deshaun Watson is, and, and Sherm said it this week, he's a rookie, he's going to make mistakes, he's still growing into the role. You play against some of those savvy veterans on that Seahawks defense. They could bait you into a few things. They could frustrate you a little bit. You could perhaps see that snowball in the Seahawks' favor, which is certainly what I've got my fingers crossed for on Sunday. Wouldn't be a bad also, thing Also, no see. rain. Yeah. Got my fingers crossed for no rain. But I don't know what the forecast is at this point. Is that just you selfishly not wanting to get be. wet on the sideline? Yeah, it might be. Yeah, yeah, the role of the sideline reporter, you'd prefer limited rain, snow, I, and wind. I wins. think we got a decent weekend coming up here. Well, I am super excited about it, as if I needed any more reason for that. So that'll do it for this week's edition of the Seahawks Insider Podcast. Make sure you check out everything that John Boyle has at Seahawks.com. Tune in to the broadcast so that you can hear myself, Warren Moon, and Steve Rabel on the call. And we will be back with you next week.